Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. And of course, if you take a look at this city, as I do every chance I get, in the interest of full disclosure, my sister lives in Brookline, so I will need no excuse whatsoever to come back here. The complement of great hotels in Boston has never been better. You've got the Moxie, you've got the, the Boston Marriott Long Wharf, and which just had a big renovation. And you have so many new hotels opening up all around the city. Plus, thank God they built the new tunnel from the airport, so now you have two ways to get into town. A great time to be here and a great way to be here as well. I will go to a museum every time I go to a city. Uh, I didn't used to do that. Uh, I used to hate going to museums. And the reason why I used to hate going to museums goes back to my childhood. No, I was not traumatized. But in a way, I was because I was not allowed to look other than no touching. I couldn't get involved. Nobody was there as a storyteller to explain to me what I was doing. I was just looking at static exhibits. And after a while, I was like, you know, why am I doing this? Uh, although I had great opportunities growing up in Manhattan, I was spending my lunch hours at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Come on. It was like a block away from my school. How could that be wrong? It's not. But it has to be reinterpreted. And one of the people doing that and one of the organizations doing that is uh, the Museum of Science right here in Boston. Joining me now, uh, Christine Reach, who's the Vice President of Exhibits and Research at the museum. Christine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. So let's talk about the museum. 
and, and about how you are, uh, on an interactive level, explaining things to me that I couldn't even graduate from in high school. The museum's mission is to make sure that everyone sees the role that they play in science and technology. And we really do try to be a place for everyone. I mean, for example, if you ask kids where food comes from, they tell you the store. Not good. Not good. Right. Um, there's so much that comes from science to our everyday lives. And we know that people learn in different ways. Some people learn hands-on. Some people learn through video. Some people learn by looking at collections. Um, there are people who do that. Some people enjoy interacting with live animals, and the Museum of Science has all of that, and we bring all of it to bear to have a place where you can spend time together as a family. All right, since you opened the door, how am I going to interact with live animals? We are an accredited zoo, which most people do not realize. A Museum of Science is an accredited zoo? We are an accredited zoo. And so we think about all the ways that you interact with science, and one is... Do the animals wear white lab coats? You know they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but they should. We call them our animal ambassadors, and we have them out in our exhibit halls. We also bring them out as part of our stage demonstrations. One of my favorites is a new acquisition of ours, which is an oxalotl, and it is... Uh, excuse me, yes, what? An oxalotl, and it is... That sounds like something that has to be removed. <laughs> it does. It is an adorable salamander that has... As salamanders are. As salamanders are. Yeah. Um, it lives in the water, and it has frills as its lungs external to its head. So it looks like this little floating, smiling lion. Um, and it is just adorable, and it's a great way of learning about regenerative tissue. Because this is something that completely recreates itself all the time. It completely recreates itself all the time. You can, um, if it loses a limb it will regrow. If it loses its tail, it will regrow. And so it's a wonderful creature for scientists to study in terms of thinking about our own regenerative possibilities in the future. Wow. And how big is this salamander? It ain't big. No, it's um, less than a foot long. Yeah. Um, and they come in different colors. So they come in pink and they come in green and we have them all out you're there. Sounding like, you're sounding like retail now. <laughs> <laughs> I love watching the axolotls. They are adorable, and watching them float is, is really fun. Um, we also have the world's oldest porcupine. and so How do you know that? The oldest recorded. Um, he's 31 years old, and um, he's not out on display. He's now what we call retired, and so he's living <laughs> a, a great life um, within um, the support of our animal care collection. Collectors. Wow, the world's oldest porcupine. World's oldest porcupine. Okay. Now, you're not from here originally. I am not. No, you're a Staten Islander. I am a Staten Islander. And a Yankees fan in Boston. Oh, I converted. Oh, you did? I did. Okay. Um, I practically got disowned by my family when I did. Um, but, you know, it's hard not to love sports here in Boston. It's what we're about. Um, it gets us in our gut. And um, when I first arrived, they were the underdogs. And who doesn't want to root for the underdogs? No, my sister, born and raised in New York, um, Mets fan all her life, marries her husband, moves to Brookline. And, of course, she now lives at the Green Monster. You know, so it's, what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? I know. Okay, but you've been at the museum for like 23 years. I have, yes. What's been the most exciting exhibit that you've done that's, that's not a rotating exhibit that's still there? Oh, that's still there. For me, I think it's the Yawkey Gallery on the Charles River. And so um, it did open up a few years ago, and one of the most spectacular aspects of this exhibit is its three-story tall windows that look out on the Charles River. And in it, you can um, engage in engineering design activities. We have a virtual river 
that you can place physical objects on and change the river and how it behaves. Um, it works like magic. Um, so and you can be your very own muskox. You can be <laughs> your very own muskox. Um, and so uh, my son loves that exhibit because uh, there's a sewer treatment plant and you can change different aspects of the sewer treatment plant and, you know. I would like to do that in a lot of cities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, if you're a six-year-old, what's better than exploring um, sewage treatment plants? That's right, poop in a river. If you know what, what was that name again? Poop in a river. <laughs> yes, I love it. Hey, but you did something with the Arctic, the Arctic exhibit as well. That's coming up this year. Yeah. Um, so we are working on a whole new kind of exhibit experience that immerses you in an Arctic environment. So you're going to play the role of a research scientist, and. The entrance to the exhibit will be an ice cave where there'll be real ice um, that are the walls of the exhibit. And you've got to navigate across a glacier. And you have to navigate across a virtual glacier. And there are hidden crevasses and you use technology to see if you can get across and without falling in one of the crevasses. But the best part of all this, because it has to have a purpose, is it allows you to have a discussion about climate change. It does. And it also has, allows us to have a conversation around science and the role that technology plays in helping us to better understand our world. And so we'll have a great piece on ice cores, which are digital record of the world's history, dating back tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, where we learn about carbon dioxide emissions and how they have increased over time and how that has led to an altered climate. Um, but there's also stories of hope in the ice, and we hope to get those across as well. There better be. Yeah. Um, a great example, most people don't know that you could actually see in the ice the lead that was introduced at the time of the Romans when they were producing their co coins, and also when the automobile was introduced. And then you also see um, the lead go away, uh, basically in the ice, once we started switching to unleaded gasoline, which was a worldwide effort. Well, I must tell you, last year about this time, I was in the Antarctic, uh, sailed down through the Drake Passage, not the, not the smoothest ride in the world, but that's, that's the reason why they call it the Drake Shakes. But when I was there, I was seeing icebergs that were breaking off that were 13 miles long. And it's, you know, what happens in the Arctic, what happens in Antarctica, it all affects us. You know, it changes the weather patterns across the Earth. It changes the sea level. And so we want to create this connection um, to this environment. It can seem so far away, but going and visiting it in a simulated way helps you to realize that what's happening around climate change is, is affecting all of us um, in ways that you can't if you don't visit the Now, those for places. the kid and all of us, are you doing overnights? We do do overnights um, at the Museum of Science, largely by working with different groups um, that can arrange to do overnights, and we um, host overnights for our members as well. So basically, you can sleep with a salamander. You can sleep with the salamander, yes. But don't touch the porcupine. Toto, <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And everywhere you walk, I mean, there are more museums per capita here. And more, I mean, and they don't have to be called officially museums. You just look up and it's a museum. It's, it's just what it is. Uh, my next guest is the president and CEO of a place called Revolutionary Spaces, which you were actually the old stewards, if you go, of the, of the old State House uh, Museum and the old State, House, State Meeting House, right? And this is all along the Freedom Trail. 
That's right, yeah. Uh, the Old State House was the seat of government in Revolutionary Boston, and Old South Meeting House was the largest indoor gathering place intended to be the place where popular politics happened, and it's just two blocks down the street from the Old State House. It was where the Boston Tea Party began. And of course, Nat Shadley, before he became the president and CEO, was teaching American and Native American history at Wellesley College, so uniquely qualified to run this deal. Well, I've tried to do it in both settings, but I have to say I really enjoy public history and, and reaching a much wider audience than I enjoyed um, and the academic work. I mean, part of any good museum or any good presentation has got to be storytelling and, and relating it to what we're doing in our lives today. How do you do that? Well, there's a range of different ways, um, but our goal is really to support people in making the the imaginative leap back into the past. So we've tried a range of ways of doing that, um, exhibits or tours, but what we've had a lot of success with is plays that bring to life a moment in the past and allow people to see it as a human experience. And you know, it's, it's interesting to me, and I'm sure ha having taught history, you, you might agree with this, you know, we live in a world of constantly revisionist history. Um, you know, the, the guys who won the war get to write the books. You know, it, it, it's, it's, when I was growing up, and, and, and we, just, uh, we just did a, a radio show in the Dominican Republic, and of course, you can't go anywhere in the Dominican Republic without talking about Christopher Columbus. And when I was growing up, and I, I bet it was true for you too, Nat, you know, we studied him as a hero in school, the discoverer of the new world and what a cool guy he was. We celebrate Columbus Day. We have Columbus Day parades. You start reading his, his biographies today. This guy was a savage murderer. This guy was destroying entire indigenous populations in the name of the king and queen of Spain. So, I mean, when you're talking about American revolutionary history here in Boston, I guess you have to tread somewhat lightly. Well, I think that's right, but history is always very complex, and we tend to see the piece of it that relates most directly to the moment that we're living in now. Of course. Um, so, so how do you tell that story now to the kids of my age when I was there, you know, uh, of, of how America came to be? Well, I think the thing that we've found most important is to keep in mind the questions that were born in these two important buildings um, and to remember that those questions are still alive today, right? So the Old State House and Old South Meeting House... And these House, are both 18th century buildings. That's right. The Old State House was built in 1713. It's actually the oldest public building that still survives from any of the British colonies anywhere in North America. Um, and the Old South Meeting House was built in 1729 as a congregational church. Uh, but both of them are places where our most fundamental American questions live. Um, who speaks for me? How is my voice heard? When we say we the people, exactly who's included in that category of we? So we can directly <laughs> yeah. relate. What do you mean by we? <laughs> exactly. No, just and, and as an example of that, this past summer we had a great experience running a play called The Petition that brought to life a moment in 1774 when people of color in Boston brought to the governor and to the council, which was like the upper house of the legislature, uh, a petition saying if we really believe that all people are created equal, if we believe in natural rights, then slavery really is something that's anathema and we should get rid of it. Um, and and it, it took a while to have that happen, but at least they first did the petition here. That's right. That's right. So um, there's a decision made at the time not to pursue that uh, that question and instead to focus on the relationship between the colonies and Britain. But American history is the unfolding of those questions across time. We, we still grapple with the legacy of slavery um, in Boston today. Hey, listen, we're still grappling with the Boston Tea Party. 
That's right. Uh, that's right. And how do we understand what that was all about? Now, that one of those buildings had a part to play in the Boston Tea Party. That's right. Old South Meeting House. Um, it was the place where you gathered people indoors if you wanted to have a big meeting. Um, it could, today we say the capacity of Old South Meeting House is about 650 people, but they squeezed four or 5,000 people in at a time Come on. for important public meetings. Yeah, let's talk about no fire codes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So in, in December of 1773, Boston was hotly debating uh, the Tea Act and whether tea in, in ships in Boston Harbor could be offloaded and taxed in Boston. And the town said, some in the town said, we should just do it. Um, and others said, absolutely not. We can't allow it to be offloaded. Um, they had a meeting to figure out how to proceed in Old South Meeting House. They couldn't reach an agreement. Um, the meeting broke up. Gee, they marched down to changed. the wharf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They marched down to the wharf and, and took matters into their own hands. And that's how it happened. That's right. We're talking about the 250th anniversary coming up this year. Of the, of the Boston Massacre. Tell, tell a little bit about that story, then how you put that in perspective. Um, so the Boston Massacre uh, happened in 1770. The, I think it's really important we remember this as us versus them, Americans versus British, but Bostonians thought of themselves as British subjects and they were proud of it in 1770, but their town was occupied by several thousand British soldiers in a town of just 15,000 Boston residents. Um, they were there as a police force to keep the peace and to tamp down some of the public protests. And their navy was here too. Uh, that's right. That's right. And um, Bostonians um, did not particularly like that their own army was in town serving as a police force. Um, and there were escalating tensions that happened over a period of many months. And then they boil over on the night of March 5th, 1770. Um, and before what begins as a protest is complete, British soldiers have fired onto a crowd of civilians and five people die. Um, so it strikes Boston like an incredible hammer blow. How could this happen? How could people have been killed in the streets by our own soldiers? Um, and it comes to be used for propaganda purposes, but I think it's really important that we also remember um, just the impact of a sudden eruption of violence in one's own midst. I thought a lot about this um, just a few years ago when we had a bomb go off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Of course. Um, and just the resonance between that moment and the emotional impact that it had on our city and the way in which our city came together to deal with that moment uh, made me think differently about the massacre. What did it feel like to live in Boston at the time that townspeople were killed? What was the emotional experience like? And there was a real opportunity, we thought, to, to allow people um, to have an experience of the history that would help them to see the present in a different way, um, and also to use their experience of the present to have a deeper understanding of the past. Boston strong 250 years earlier. That's right. That's right. Um, and there's a long tradition of Boston, in Boston of remembering this event as a way of thinking deeply about who we want to be today and the city we want to build for the future. And when you tell, you know, look, as a historian, I'm sure you know that uh, the famous quote that those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. How do you approach that in telling the story of Boston? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that um, that Boston was not unified in the revolutionary period. Um, and to recognize that Boston and our country are not unified today. We have an opportunity as we think about the 250th anniversary of independence coming up around the corner to ask ourselves, how can we use the history in order to build a sense of common cause, to overcome some of our divisions, um, which Bostonians have done at different points in time. Um, we sometimes forget black abolitionists remember the massacre and the figure of Crispus Attucks um, in the 1840s and the 1850s as a way to get leverage on 
the question of slavery and to argue that, in fact, people of African descent should and can be citizens in the United States. So we have a long tradition of using this history to talk about who we are today. Well, you talk about that initial petition, which was tabled, about abolishing slavery. Do you actually give us the entire trajectory and so we can actually figure out what were the pivotal moments, the, the, the turning points, if you will, that actually led to it? Sure. Um, all the way back in the Revolutionary period, 10% uh, of Boston was enslaved, and of course, slavery was deeply entrenched in many other colonies as a fundamental institution. Um, the, the colonies decide uh, not to open up the issue of slavery. In fact, they build protections for the institution of slavery into the Constitution in order to ensure that it's adopted by all of the states. Um, it's not until the 1840s and the 1850s that you really have the beginnings of a popular movement um, that could potentially see a majority in support of abolishing the institution of slavery throughout the country. Um, and in, that's about 15 years before the Civil War. That's right, that's right. Um, and in 1858, Bostonians, black and white abolitionists, um, organize here in this city um, in response to a decision in the Supreme Court um, that said basically people of, of African descent can't be citizens. Um, in, in March of 1858, on the anniversary of the Boston Massacre in that year, they organize a series of orations in Faneuil Hall to talk about the victims of the Boston Massacre and in particular Crispus Attucks. And they say, you know, Crispus Attucks was the first to die on behalf, in behalf of the revolution and in defense of our liberties. And we should recognize um, he's a reminder that, um, that, that people of African descent have been here all along and that they too have been advocating for liberty um, and we should think about their liberty in a different light. And all part of that can be seen at your location. You know, it's interesting, you mentioned the Dred Scott decision. I'm amazed that to this day, the year 2020, there are certain state legislators in this country and certain state governments that are still holding on to that. They're still using it as a reference point to justify bad decisions. Um, well, yeah, the laws and the way in which we interpret them and the courts have interpreted them um, certainly change over time. Um, I, I think uh, what we're most interested in is opening up the ongoing conversation for people because um, what made change in the revolutionary period was ordinary people taking to the streets and insisting um, that their voices be heard, and, and we doing, still need to do that today. And doing extraordinary things. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. We are in Boston at the Ritz-Carlton. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air, and we'll be doing that uh, throughout the show. Um, Boston, to me, is one of my favorite cities, not because it was one of the very first cities I traveled to as a kid, uh, but because every time I come back, I'm learning more and more, not just about the city, but about this country. Uh, and I love walking Boston. I, 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 I forget mass transit for me. I like walking Boston, and you can see so much here. Um, and we're not just talking about historical buildings or the North End, or, or we're not talking about Faneuil Hall. All those you're going to see, um, or walking the old revolutionary trails, uh, the cemeteries, which I love, um, or even you know discovering where the Parker House rolls came from. I mean. 
All that's well and good, but my next guest goes way beyond that. She's the editor at Eater Boston, and Rachel Blumenthal, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. So what I'm noticing in Boston right now, and you are too, uh, is that there's a food explosion going on. We're going way beyond uh, you know, clam chowder and, and, and lobster rolls. We're at like food, food trucks are everywhere and food halls are everywhere. Yeah, it's it's been the year or two of the food hall, honestly. Um, we were supposed to have a bunch open in 2019, and a few of them did, but we have a lot more coming up this year. Um, it's it's going to be a, a really exciting year for food, I think. I mean, it's a great it's a great place for existing or new chefs to showcase their food. Definitely. Uh, I, some of my favorite food halls are in Lisbon and Portugal. Uh, Time Out is a great one there. There's an amazing food hall in Warsaw. I mean, of course, uh, all over Spain. In Boston, now we're getting beyond just the Union Oyster House, aren't we? Has staying power, definitely. Uh, and seafood is still important here. But, I mean, if you want seafood, you can go way beyond, you know, kind of the obvious answers. We've got Island Creek Oyster Bar. Uh, they have their own farm in Duxbury that's now shipping oysters everywhere. Uh, Row 34, their sibling spot, is fantastic. There's so many good seafood places, whether you want a lobster roll or you just want you know, chowder, you can do that, but you can also get these fancy plated dishes, this fine dining, it's fantastic New England seafood at so many places. If you go back to Faneuil Hall, I mean, the food hall there, I mean, and all around that area, it's, it's, it's crazy because you're going from one lobster roll place to another lobster roll place. It's like, all right, enough with the lobster rolls. <laughs> we cannot forget Italian food in Boston. True. Well, we, I mean, the North End is the obvious choice, and it's great. It's historical, it's charming, it's beautiful. Go to the North End, but when I want Italian food, there are restaurants in other pockets of the city and beyond that I just, I, I love. You know, there's this restaurant hidden in Cambridge, uh, so Cambridge is just north, north of Boston. It's a city of its own, but, I mean, you can walk there from Boston. You should. <laughs> so this restaurant called Gran Gusto is hidden in a weird, tiny little office building in an otherwise residential section of Cambridge. It's not near any of the main squares, and it's it's serving some of the best Italian food outside of Italy. The yep. pizza there is incredible, kind of a Neapolitan style. Okay, I gotta ask the the the, the obvious pizza question: thin crust or thick crust? Oh, so, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I have a lot of pizza thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite styles are generally New York style or New Haven style. Um, my husband's from near New Haven, so we're very into the whole Sally's and Pepe, Pepe's rivalry. Actually, we just got two kittens, and their name Sally and Pepe. <laughs> oh, okay, you've gone too far now. <laughs> Um, but I have so many pizzas that I love in Boston. I think that a lot of people say, oh, you know, Boston's pizza is terrible because they're thinking of bigger cities like New York. But if you know where to look, there's some great pizza here. Okay, give me like your, your number, your numero uno pizza. If you okay, could. well, it depends on the type. So for the fancier wood-fired kind, I'm going to go to Area 4. They have a couple locations. The one in the south end this is a little bigger. This is thin bigger. slice? Uh, yeah, it's thin. It's it's sort of Neapolitan-inspired. It's wood-fired. It's got a good char around the edges. Yeah, you it's know fantastic. what? You have to have a good char around the edges. Definitely. <laughs> and then you have to fold it the right way. I suppose. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I always get the slice and I fold it. Come on. You I know. don't know how to fold a slice. I, I'm not You don't know how to fold a slice. It's, <laughs> I'm not it's good like at making that. a paper airplane. It's like you just don't throw the plane. You just eat the, eat the pizza. <laughs> um, well, anyway, that's <laughs> I don't know how to do that. One day, maybe. Okay. Um, we also have some good New York style. Hopefully, you would approve of them. Uh, Newtown Grill is a sports bar in Cambridge that has the best cheap slice around for about 12 bucks you can get a large cheese pizza and a pitcher of pbr uh, the artisanal beer scene here is still pretty big yes we have so many new breweries opening 
every day it feels like and some of the breweries from outside of the city have expanded into the city like night shift brewery from everett is one and of the by the way popular. this is limited production stuff this they're not shipping all over the country you, can, yeah. you only find it really here yeah yeah there's definitely lots of small batch stuff going around experimental things in small tap rooms there's there's a lot of good beer to find good cocktails too boston has a strong beer scene that goes or strong booze scene i should say that goes well beyond sports bars all right so now let's talk about a trend that may be fading my two most unfavorite words. Ready? Okay. Fine dining. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, every time I go to a hotel, they want to say, oh, look, here's our fine... And they always whisper it. It's like, here's our fine dining room. <laughs> like, I want to eat in your crappy dining room. It's like, stop <laughs> it. I mean, but the whole concept, though... People are, are, they want to just grab and go most of the time. Yeah, it, it's definitely harder for fine dining restaurants to survive these days. And what I've been seeing a lot of is that restaurants that are fine dining find ways to kind of diversify what they're offering by having, uh, you know, a wine bar night or like once a week or every night late at night, they'll offer cheaper a la carte options. So you can still go there and get a taste of it, even if you can't afford the usual special occasion pricing. Um, and a lot of these same restaurants are also, you know, opening offshoots at food halls. So Although the, that's their presentation. That's yeah. their opportunity to showcase. Yeah. Although um, I don't know if the audience that you're getting at the food hall is the same audience that you're trying to bring in for these, you know, hundreds of dollars tasting menus. But although what I'm seeing is, and, and maybe I'm, you know, I, I'm speaking in an elitist way, I hope I'm not, is that when it comes to food, People just will look for the experience first and figure out the price later these days. To an extent, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on the audience, maybe. Um, I mean, I definitely am looking at the prices on it. Oh, no, I'm not saying papers, you're not looking at the prices. Yeah, you're looking for the food experience, and then you figure out the price. Yeah. Meaning they want it authentic, they want it genuine, mm. they want it cutting edge. They want it. They want bragging rights, so they can basically <laughs> say, hey, I ate here before you did. Yeah. <laughs> right? There's definitely some element to that. I think that you know Instagram and Yelp and all that kind of boosts that feeling a little bit more you know well, people let's wanna... talk about that phenomenon because the complaints I'm getting from a lot of restaurateurs in New York mm -hmm. is that their business is down now because of of Yelp and because of this of, of the delivery services because they're not able to fill the restaurants now people are ordering and ordering and ordering in yeah, I, I think that's definitely a valid concern. I, it's easier to just stay home and get whatever you want from any restaurant. Even some of the nicer restaurants, you know, they're partnering with Caviar, which I guess is kind of the high-end delivery one. So you know what that's, you know that's going to come to? What we'll call casual fine dining. You get to have great food in your underwear. <laughs> it's a perfect combination. It's a perfect combination. <laughs> Last but not least, Asian food. Oh, man, it's been a great few years for, I mean, it's always been a great few years for Asian food in Boston, but especially lately. We have Chinatown. Chinatown's incredible. I, lately, the Southeast Asian food scene has really been growing, and maybe I'm just noticing it more because I went to Thailand recently and I've been obsessed with it, but we've had a few Thai restaurants and Southeast Asian restaurants open that are just serving so far beyond the, you know, the usual curries, pad thai, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a great time. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go You know, this is a show that uh, we, we happily uh, embrace history and, uh, and the opportunities in Boston are almost endless And of course my next guest knows all about that Because she's the president of the Massachusetts Historical Society Catherine Algor, how are you? Hi what is the Massachusetts Historical Society, and how far back does it actually go? Well, I have to tell you, we are the first historical society in America. We were founded in 1791. 
Um, and it was before really, you had history. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, it's interesting what they were sort of collecting in 1791 was the gentleman and our founder was Jeremy Belknap understood that um, the, the, the great documents of the revolution, which was only about 20 years before that, practically journalism, um, were disappearing. And so he was very concerned about that. So he started collecting the documents of the founding of the nation. Now, the documents go way beyond the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Oh, my gosh. What are we talking about? Well, we're, we're talking about official papers, too. But for instance, he decided that um, he was going to approach a, a leading light of the town, a gentleman named Paul Revere, and say, you know, before you pass on to a another sphere, would you no, please... No, 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 before you get back on your horse and start yelling. <laughs> well, yeah, he was right, pretty yeah. old by then, yeah, so, uh, but, and he was a leading light of Boston, uh, an entrepreneur, in, industrial uh, giant, and they asked him, um, and Jeremy Belknap asked him, to, would he write down the, his account of that famous night? And that's why we know about it, because it was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat 100 years later in our reading room and read that letter that and Paul Revere wrote. it was Revere based on that that he, he wrote. wrote the poem, yeah. But we collect, I, I want to say, we do have very famous collections. So we are the home of the Adams Families Papers Project. So we have John Adams, John Quincy Adams, all of their papers, uh, and the whole family, really, up until the 19th century. We have half of the papers of Thomas Jefferson, and that's kind of interesting story but really we have 14 million manuscript pages and objects and artifacts and really they're about ordinary people so it's the diaries it's the letters it's the storytelling it's the storytelling it's the stories it's the story of businesses we have business records of clubs and churches and it's really the story of these people in Massachusetts crafting what it means to be an American well, you didn't come to this job without portfolio. You wrote a number of books, one of which was called The Perfect Union, Dolly Madison, right? Indeed, Dolly Madison yes. and the creation of the American nation. Yes, yes. And in fact, I came to the Historical Society in 1996 when I was uh, starting to become a professional historian. I was a graduate student at Yale, and I won a fellowship, which is one of the things we do. We give fellowships to scholars. So I've been coming to the Historical Society for quite a while. But you've been following Dolly Madison for a long time. I do. I have to say, I, I think it's the only uh, f scholarly full-length uh, biography, and they very uh, kindly, the folks over at American Experience made it into a documentary, so yes. Well, let's talk about Dolly for a second, because most of us only know the, the surface stuff. Right? Yes, it's true. She's she's at once one of the most famous first ladies and also, you know, but people know basically cupcakes and cakes and pies and things like that. Yeah, see? There yeah, you go. Exactly. But what I, I look at Dolly for is I, I look at her years in Washington, those first years, where the founders had deliberately set up a government that was very light on bureaucracy uh, because that was um, a choice. So where did we go wrong? Well... <laughs> We need Dolly Madison, basically, what we need now, yeah. because what she did, because what they were trying to do is they wanted to be like not like a court. They didn't want politics as usual. They were trying something new. But what Dolly Madison and her female colleagues did is they built a kind of parallel bureaucracy in Washington that helped the business of politics get done. And in doing so... So it was a backdoor deal. It's a, I wouldn't call it a backdoor deal, but I, I call it the unofficial sphere, right? But it happens in... Unofficial, unofficial sphere in my book means backdoor. <laughs> And it's a, the place of process where politics, where people get to know each other as human beings, yeah. and they can make proposals, and they can collaborate. Now, doesn't that sound like something we need now? They can have conversations. They could indeed. Okay, so we know about Dolly. Yes. But let's go back now to Massachusetts. Yes. And the real, 
you know, birth of a nation. Yeah, absolutely. And they were so conscious, the revolutionary generation was so conscious that what they were doing was going to make history. So that, for instance, John Adams, when he wrote, he not only saved his correspondence, he made copies of what he wrote to other people. Well, so did yeah. Thomas Jefferson, and, so that they could be saved. And what was fascinating to me, of course, wasn't just Adams, but Abigail Adams. Yes, absolutely, our beloved, yeah. We had a, um, what do you call that in uh, the March Madness? We had a tourney, is that what the right thing? We had thing? a tournament, Bracket. yeah. yeah. Uh, to see what was the most popular, beloved thing we owned, and what won was Abigail's Remember the Ladies Letter. <laughs> I guess the real question is, we, we know who the stars are, Right. right. Who were the unheard people in the evolution of this country that happened here? So it's interesting that you mention that because our present exhibit um, is getting ready to mark an anniversary, which is March 5th, is the Boston Massacre, right? And this is an occasion at night where the troops fire on the, the what will be the, well, the colonists, what will be the, the British patriots, troops. the British yeah, troops. Yeah. Well, everybody's British at that moment, but right. you know what I mean. The citizens of Boston are fired upon. And we have an exhibit, and it's called Fire Voices from the Boston Massacre. And yes, the stars are there because, of course, John Adams is the man who's going to defend the soldiers. But because it's a legal proceeding, we have in our collection depositions. We have depositions from um, an African-American pastry chef, uh, from women, from uh, children who witnessed this. And, we're and, and by the way, to put this in perspective, we talk about depositions today. They're recorded. They're videotaped. This is all done by hand. Oh, it is all done by hand. But what we did do is for our exhibition, we put it in the hands of actors so you can come and see costumed actors talking about this event. And, of course, they all contradict each other because that's... That's, that's, the American, that's the American that's way. That's the American way. <laughs> oh, and there's also a conspiracy theory in the Boston Massacre, too, so yeah, well, nothing we really We can't is, live without that. No, it's a, right, baked into our DNA. It exactly. is. Yes. What's the most surprising uh, item that you have or the most surprising exhibit that you have that people are just not expecting? Oh, my gosh. I, I have to say, the, the phrase that I hear over and over again, and I hear it from, from my mouth, but also from my staff, some of whom have worked at the Society for 40 years, and certainly from everybody who visits, it can be anything they'll say, I didn't know we had that. I mean, it's that, that kind of feeling. So when you see um, El Elbridge Gerry of, of Gerrymander, and we have the Gerrymander cartoon, we, but we also have his copy of the Constitution with the notes all over it, and you say, I didn't know we had that. Um, we have Robert Goldshaw's sword, we have. I'll give you an example. Yeah. I was at an amazing museum that's opening this year, the, the Grand Egyptian Museum in Cairo, which is it's the new incarnation of the Egyptian Museum. Right. And it's unbelievable. And I was able to go into the workshops with all the restorers and spend two days there. And I'm up close and personal, I'm not making this up, with King Tut's underwear. Wow. Okay. I mean, and things that we would not even think. What? Like, goes back to what you were just saying. I didn't know they had that. Right. right? And, you know, we're not as old as, uh, <laughs> we don't have things quite as old as that. But we do have things that I think are startling to us now, like we have beautiful jewelry um, that you are told, oh, it's mourning jewelry, it's jewelry uh, that you wear while you're mourning the death of someone. And then you realize that, that the jewelry is hair that's been tightly woven into a beautiful design. We find that very odd. Uh, daguerreotypes of children who are recently deceased. Uh, these are all things that are not that old, and yet they're just from another world. I was always fascinated going to, to the Schönbrunn Palace in, in, in Vienna because all the oil portraits that are on the walls 
are of young princes and princesses when they were nine years old because the lifespan was 17. Yeah. I mean, right, you better get the painting done now because they ain't going to be around. Right. And, and the th same thing with the sort of the deceased children. It was a way to remember them and to memorialize them. But it's interesting when you're, you get to see these things because, of course, you're a very famous uh, uh, travel um, oh, stop, journalist. So, but the great thing about the Historical Society, which, as I said, is free and open to the public, is you can come in with an interest in not just Massachusetts history. We collect what we, we say we collect Massachusetts history, but with a national lens. And let's say you're interested in World War I. You can come into our library. You can talk to a professional reference librarian, librarian who will go into who, our collection. By the way, I'm very happy still exists. Oh yes, we yeah. have a, we have a bunch of them. They're all fabulous, yeah. and you can actually ask them about World War One or what we have. And you, regular person, can actually hold these things in your hand. You can read them. You can take notes. You can take pictures of them, and that I think is really special. It is. Yeah. It is. I mean, look, most of my staff is under the age of 35. And if they're sitting where you are right now, they'd text me. You know, they, 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 to be able to go and have a conversation and then to connect the dots and then hold it in your hand. Absolutely. That has to have an amazing impact. Yeah, and it's available to, to everyone. And then, I mean, the, the fun part of our job at the Historical Society is to connect as many people and as many kinds of people to our collections as possible. So we are always reaching out to teachers and students, and we have a robust slate of public programs. <laughs> we always have an exhibit going. Right. You know, we have a fabulous fundraiser with John Meacham coming at the Copley. So we're trying to imagine um, we're trying to imagine ways that people can use history, whether it's an interest in civic education, whether it's a uh, passion about their family or their neighborhood, or just curiosity. Well, it begs the question, which I'm going to ask right now, how do you use the history at your organization to explain current events? You know, I have to say we're um, very, uh, we have a couple of areas of specialty, and that's, that's one of ours. Um, so our programs are usually staffed with, um, if you've won a Pulitzer Prize, you've spoken at the Historical Society. So we're, we're having a reexamination of Jefferson, and who do we have? We have Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf, who's the Thomas Jefferson Chair at UVA. Catherine Allgore, the president of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Thank you so much for joining us. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. One of the things that always amazes me about Boston, and it sounds silly, but it's true. You know, b born and raised in Manhattan, my two first field trips in school were Washington, D.C. And, and Boston. You know, when you walk around a city, you see everything. Uh, you learn everything. And Boston, you, you cannot walk three feet in Boston without being completely steeped in American history. The history goes back to day one, uh, and be, even before day one. Well, my next guest doesn't go back to day one, but basically, her museum goes back 150 years. She's the deputy director of the Museum of Fine Arts right here in Boston, Katie, Gret Katie Getchell. How are you? Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. 150th anniversary. Wow. Yes. 
It's an exciting moment to really reflect on the uh, the thoughts of the original founders of the museum, what the museum means to uh, communi its community, and how do we um, continually uh, reinvent that uh, for current and future audiences. Now, I remember, and I'm old enough to remember, when I first visited the museum, it was a different experience for me. Uh, I was told to look but not touch. I was told to stand back. Um, and those kinds of museum experiences from my childhood uh, sort of imprinted in a negative way because it was sort of like, oh, museums are boring. You've turned things around. We certainly are trying, and it's a constant, uh, it's a constant um, uh, exciting journey to be on. Uh, we certainly want people to understand that the museum is way, way, way more beyond, beyond the frame, beyond the walls. Um, we well, have a collection comes alive when people get to interact. Exactly, exactly. The, only, the, 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 the duty we have in caring for this um, tremendous collection built by generations over many years is to share it with the public, and you have to do that in many different ways. Different audiences um, respond in different ways. Uh, we've, we've, it's been a great joy over the past years to think about and enact uh, programs, films, lectures, courses, uh, art making, uh, overnight parties, uh, things that really um, make people like you who might have been thinking of the museum you know, when your child was boring or quiet um, to say, wow, that isn't the museum I remember. Right. Exactly. But I mean, certain things in the museum persevere. I mean, it, it, you know, the American wing, the Dutch, the Flemish, the whole get right. What's new? What's new? Uh, well, there are always new acquisitions and exhibitions, and we have a couple of things, especially for our 150th, of course. You can imagine we've been planning for this for quite some time. Um, and uh, one some opening this week uh, is an exhibition of uh, curated by teens. So that's new. The idea that we have local teens who've been working with us um, Smart move. for the, uh, for the Smart past. Move, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we've had teen programs for 10 or 12 years now, but this is a, a, another uh, evol evolution of it where they're, they're curators. They've selected the works. They've learned how to design an exhibition, what it means to be a curator. Um, they've written the labels themselves, and that opens um, on Monday. So. Well, they're immersed in it. Yes. The other thing I like about the museum is you're open late. Yes. What, three nights a week? We are till 10. We're open seven <coughs> days a week, uh, which is unusual for most museums, and uh, we're open three nights till 10. And the coolest thing is, if you're still doing it, overnights. <laughs> we do late nights now. We, we did overnights. Um, what happened we, we'll to the do them, We'll do them again. We'll do them again. Um, did the night at the museum have an impact? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, the, it was a really exciting opportunity to open the museum overnight when we had an artwork, uh, Christian Marclay's The Clock, which is a 24-hour art piece, so it gave us a good excuse to open overnight. We found that in an ongoing way, opening just till 2 a.m. is really kind of enough for most people to get a lot out of the museum. So three times a year, um, we open. We have a late night party till 2 a.m. and the next one's in April when we'll uh, be opening our Basquiat and hip hop generation exhibition at the late night party. So now, of it's course be if you one. open the Basquiat exhibit you have to be careful he might pull a stunt. <laughs> you think? Oh, uh, ba Banksy might come and pull yeah. a stunt. <laughs> no, not yeah. Basquiat, I'm talking about Banksy. Sorry about that. No, 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 that's I'm still <laughs> trying to recover from that one. <laughs> yes, that was pretty uh, that was pretty amazing. And um, at our late night uh, parties, people are looking at art and making art, and we have a lot of local artists and performers. And um, we don't yet have uh, Banksy, but certainly one of our performers could do something <laughs> equally, um, equally uh, surprising, I think. There are lots of surprises at those nights. Well, speaking of surprises, for someone who's never visited the museum, uh, in your experience, what's the first thing that surprises them? I think the the scale of it and that it's all real. I mean, I, I'm still surprised having worked there as many years as I have. You've people been there 28 years. <laughs> 28 years, people still say to me, this is all real. Um, I think just the, the sheer uh, amazement at the 
breadth of humanity uh, that you can experience in the museum from all parts of the globe, all parts of time, uh, the amazing cultures you can come into contact with, start to think about the people who made those artworks, those objects, uh, what they meant to them, uh, how they survived all this time, how do we take care of them, where do they get stored, all those kinds of, um, what do you do with this huge um, um, uh, production of humanity over, over generations? One of my favorite all-time artists in history, you have lots of, Monet. Oh, great. Well, then you're in for a treat. Uh, if you come back in April, um, one of our 150th uh, uh, projects is to, for the first time in over 25 years, to have all 35 of our Monet canvases on view together in an exhibition, um, which will be a remarkable, beautiful opportunity uh, for new and recurring visitors. I'm trying to think if the Hermitage in St. Petersburg has more, but 35 is a big number. 35 is big. It's among um, the largest outside of France. I, I, don't, I don't know the numbers of the Hermitage offhand, but it's, it's, we're up there with them and, and, um, and others, Chicago and a few others that have, are lucky enough. And it's interesting for me to think about that Bostonians bought those paintings um, when they were fresh, uh, and they were revolutionary, and they were contemporary, and they were... You see, that's an important point, because most people think, oh, museums acquire things later, this was day one. This was day one. These uh, Bostonians were in France, um, enamored with Monet and his amazing ability to make mundane, everyday objects uh, appear new and fresh and help them see the world in a new way. They bought them, brought them back to Boston, and they ended up at the museum over many years. And uh, So I can imagine the Bostonians in France going, this looks nice, I'll take it. I mean, it was as simple as that when you think about it. Uh, probably, probably, and interestingly that in France it was, to, I think when we look at Monet now, it seems so pretty and easy on the eye, uh, but to think back to how uh, revolutionary and um, unpopular in many ways it, it was when it first came out, that it was really like cutting-edge contemporary art, which is hard for our eyes to imagine. So I think, when I think about that, we had an artwork at the museum for many years that uh, was a neon sign that said all art has been contemporary, and I think it's a really important thing to think about. Well, that puts it in proper perspective now, doesn't it? <laughs> All art has been contemporary. So one of these days, someone's going to look at, let's say, Basquiat or Banksy and go, God, what was that all about? Yeah, he was contemporary. Right. Simple as that. It's all about perspective over time and how, um, how, how, um, how, your, how your view of the, of the contemporary world, of the current world around you, impacts what you're looking at in the past. And we have a unique um, privilege and responsibility to help uh, to use our collections to help people think about that and see the world in new ways. And you know what? They can, especially if you're open until 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yes. That's a different way to see uh, Monet, for example. Absolutely. And um, it's amazing to me at those nights, you know, you'd think that people were most, would mostly be um, dancing and partying, and they do that, but they look at art and they look really carefully, and it's a really young, really diverse audience. From the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, Katie Mitchell, thanks so much. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. We're 
We're talking about all things Boston, and you cannot talk about Boston unless you talk about all things history. And my next guest, historian, editor of the Atlas of Boston History, Nancy Seasholz. How are you? Fine. Thanks. Delighted to be here. And delighted to have you coming here. I mean, Boston, to most Americans, Boston is a city that has, has essentially stayed the same, you know, when in fact it was constantly being built and rebuilt and constantly being expanded. Very true. In fact, that's one of the big misconceptions about Boston. I think everybody thinks of it as just a revolutionary era town. And there is a lot of, there's a freedom trail where you can walk around and look at all those sites. But as we certainly show in this historical atlas we've just produced about Boston, Boston has a long history after the revolution and many things happened here after that. Well, you did an earlier book called Mapping Boston. And in fact, you were on a pursuit of just trying to figure out the the way the sewer system worked. Yes, the sewer system, the water system, the public transportation system, the railroads, many developments that happened in the 19th century that we're still living with the consequences of today. You, you worked on this. Obviously, there are many different authors in this book. You served as the editor. What was the biggest surprise discovery? I can't say there was the biggest surprise discovery, but there certainly were some interesting ones. One was of the person who worked on sports venues found that all the sports organizations were working class groups for immigrants, particularly rowing clubs. You know, we think of rowing today as sort of an elite It's Harvard. (laughs) It's Harvard. It's all the Ivy, whatever. But at that time, there were Irish rowing clubs. And since there were so many Irish immigrants in Boston spotted all around the city, they were highly competitive with each other. It was very late that even Harvard began to incorporate athletics. At first, they thought it was just a working man's activity. So that was a big surprise, I think, to the author of that plate. Another one, at least to me, was we um, have several plates that focus on Boston in 1855, and we found that there are two 1855 censuses of Boston, one conducted by the city and one conducted by the state, and they each counted foreigners completely differently. The city census counted as foreigners all children under 21 of foreign-born parents, whether they had been born abroad or not. The state census counted as foreigners only people who had actually been born abroad. Well, if you think about it, it meant an enormous difference in the numbers of foreign-born population. And we have two different graphs in the book showing this, one based on the city census, which shows that by 1855, the foreign-born population of Boston predominated. That's the one based on the city census, which counted all the children, too. And then the one based on the state census, which shows that native-born Americans predominated. But using this book, it's a great sort of a, it's a tool actually for you to be able to navigate Boston today with some perspective. Yes. And to understand where these things developed. I actually got interested in doing the Atlas when I was working on my own book about all the filling done to create the land in Boston. I kept wishing there was one place I could go to for maps of, say, the water system, the sewer system, the rail lines. And um, it does cover that and shows how they have evolved over time. And bottom line is, when you think about Boston as a city, you get... I mean, you really get down into the nitty-gritty because it's all about landfill. Which I happen to call land-making because landfill to me means garbage dumps or filling on existing land. And what was done here to create the new land was filling in the tidal flats that surrounded the city. So I look at them as slightly different processes. However, I think you told me this, it's got more landfill than any other city? More than any other city in North America. Now, as you know, there's a great deal of interest in filling all around the world now. We have these big projects 
projects in Dubai. The new Hong Kong airport is all on mainland. So I can't, I was never able to establish because actually there are very few studies of this, whether Boston has the most, but certainly has the most in North America. Something that I did not know. You, you could even just do a landfill tour of Boston. Oh, yes. And I've even written a book of walking tours about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Nancy C. Scholes, historian, editor of the Atlas of Boston History. It's a great traveling companion because it's a whole different way to see a city, not just in terms of historical perspective, but in terms of how you got there, things we take for granted. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. <laughs> Every time I come to Boston, I'm on a quest, and my next guest might be able to help me on this, uh, to find the, the quintessential menu items that basically distinguish and define Boston. First and foremost, of course, is clam chowder. Um, and uh, before we get into that, let me introduce our next guest. He's the executive chef here at the Ritz-Carlton, Shane Cooprider. How are you? Very good. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so I'm on this never-ending quest for the best clam chowder. And, I, and I'm, I'm a New England clam chowder guy, not a Manhattan clam chowder guy. Right. Uh, what is your definition? You don't have to give me a location yet, but just we're talking ingredients. Right. And don't just say clams. Uh, of, of, of the best clam chowder. Uh, the best... Um Definition would be a, a very clean clam flavor backed up with some nice smoky bacon. And then you get But that it doesn't nice, have to have bacon. It doesn't have to have bacon, but um, I prefer it. And then to follow with that real nice creamy texture of the, uh, the, the New England clam chowder. Okay, now the stupid question about clam chowder. Is there any kind of a ratio of the number of clams to the number of potatoes? <laughs> Uh, specific ratio, not specifically. However, okay, in your ideal definition, my ideal, uh, it should be at least double the amount of clams to a potato. Okay, I'm eating. I'm eating your clam chowder because <laughs> <laughs> I've had some pretty pathetic clam chowder where there's one clam and 95 potatoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's also milk instead of a nice creamy base. So. Yeah, you uh, want it to be creamy. You want it to be creamy. And look. The definition of a great clam chowder has to be followed by a nap. Do you understand? It, always. It, always. I mean, you, you have to be laid right out there once, once, it's, once it's over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So coming to Boston, you've been here just a little bit because you've, right. you've really done an interesting circuit around both Florida and New England. Correct. Uh, your most recent stint was at the Ocean House in Rhode Island. But it's, new, it's basically coming up with a definition way beyond clam chowder mm -hmm. of New England cuisine. Correct. What is that? Well, I'm still learning that one. Uh, like I said, I'm uh, from the East Coast, and I've spent most of my time down in Florida, so I know the Southeast very, very well. Uh, so moving up here, I'm, I'm learning the, the New England uh, lifestyle and the New England cuisine, per se. Uh, it was very seafood forward. Uh, a lot of fresh, sustainable fish that we tried to uh, work through. Uh, very heartier dishes. Uh, we don't, not, haven't seen a whole lot of light dishes. Um, I think that's mostly due to the altitude and, or, the, or the elevation of the, of the, of the area. And... Uh, Still, still, like I said, still learning this piece. Well, you mentioned sustainable. So how are you sourcing your fish, and, and are, you, are, are there fish you will not order? Uh, there's some things that I don't 
particularly care for. I'm still not a fan of the swordfish just because of the, of the past uh, that it's had in there. Um, explain, but I, explain that. Uh, it was really overfished for, for quite some time, and it was actually on the black market for a while. Not the black market, but the, the do not order list for quite some time. Um, it's come off of that do not order list. However, I still feel that it's still a little overfished. Uh, I try to work with um, uh, a lot of local uh, uh, fishmongers and, and uh, day boat. Well, you have Fish no providers. trouble getting lobster here. Exactly. No, it's everywhere. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, the lobster market sort of bottomed out. I mean, it, the, the prices just dropped. Correct. Correct. It's getting a lot more, a uh, lot more available. So. And so it's still an attractive. Always. Okay. Always. But you know, you mentioned, you know, lobster. You mentioned, uh, of course, swordfish. Mm -hmm. What about salmon? Where are you getting your salmon from? I mean, is there a rule that you follow? Because you know, I go to the market. Uh, and, and some of the markets are actually, you know, somewhat transparent or more transparent in letting me know where each salmon is from, right. whether it's farmed, whether it's sustainably farmed, whatever that means, uh, and whether it's free range. Correct. As they call it, the chickens, you know. Exactly. Uh, I, I prefer to get wild when I can. Uh, sometimes the price point just doesn't allow me to do that. Uh, when I do get uh, farm raised, I do try to uh, get the Canadians semi-local. Uh, they do really nice with their Atlantic salmon here. Uh, but I limit my salmon mostly because of that farming piece. I prefer all wild-caught uh, seafood for my lines, and um, I work in that direction. So I'm looking for the more the, the local uh, New England cod, the monkfish, the scrod, and the, all these beautiful local seafood that uh, is available here where I can get salmon pretty much anywhere in the country. Now, coming up here from that southern state of Florida, yeah. <laughs> uh, what have you put on the menu here that the folks in Boston might not have expected? Uh, let me see. Uh, I recently just did a, an asabuco, so it's a mingling of some of my cuisine from the south uh, to the northern here. Uh, so I took an asabuco, um, uh, monkfish asabuco, and I've done a cro I, coffee that, crust. I've never seen that on a menu. Uh, it's this gorgeous little fish. And uh, we're doing a nice coffee crust on there. So it's a green coffee, which has a lot of antioxidants in there, a little bit of sugar, some nice pepper, some nice... Um, coriander and, and kind of that baker spice that pairs well with uh, with the coffee and then we're searing that off really well and it's going with a nice apple and celery puree and just a nice little demi gloss with that so you get all those real hearty winter flavors and a nice piece of, of uh, healthy fish and what happened to the buffalo fried oysters uh, they are still here, and uh, they they started off with a with a real bang, and now they're waning off just a little bit. Um, but it's just a very unique take on on a fried oyster, uh, where we're taking a little bit of buffalo sauce and, and a little bit of celery, and everything that you would think of in a buffalo wing, and applying that to a nice fried crispy oyster. Wow! Oh, yeah, it's delicious. Is it spicy? It's got a little spice to it. Yeah, oysters with a kick. Oysters with a kick. I mean. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. 
like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. 